We're glad that you're back for another one of our studies in the book of Revelation. Uh, today we'd like for you to turn to Revelation chapter 11. That's where we're going to start, but we're certainly glad that you've been with us for these several studies. Let me have a word of prayer and then we'll start and uh, look forward to just seeing how this all works in your head as you process it as we look at some of these things together today. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you want us to know the future. Uh, Father, we confess that we have no idea what's happening in our personal lives, certainly not our world, and yet everything runs just exactly the way that you want, not only for our world, but for our personal lives, and we want to thank you for that. We don't have to have all of the answers to know that you're leading us and that we're safe and that your plan for us is right. Uh, Father, as we look at some of the things that are happening in the world during the tribulation, help us just to try to understand uh, those things that you want us to learn that will impact us for living now. Uh, again, thank you for the Bible. Uh, it tells us what to believe, and we're just glad that we can study it together uh, today. So bless us, help us as we spend our time together, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin by referring to the timing of the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation it covers a period of seven years. If you're not familiar with that, I'll try to explain uh, why we say that in just a minute. Don't let it confuse you. But seven years is a long time. It really is a long time. If you have a baby that's recently come to your home, uh, think about the birth of your baby and then your baby being seven years old. Now that's a long time between birth to the time your son or your daughter is seven. There are a lot of hoops to jump through. There are a lot of sleepless nights. There's medicine, there's teething, there's teaching to walk, getting ready for school, all those things. It takes a long period of time to get from birth to seven, and it's great time, but it is, it's a long period of time. If you have a daughter or a son who's 10 years old, just think in seven years they will be a young adult and they will be driving your car. Now you may not be ready for that but uh, that's what's coming in seven years if you have a child that's 10 right now and those are great times but there's so much that happens between the age of 10 to to that time of 17, a little bit more grown up, more mature, we hope. Uh, responsibility of driving the car, thinking about colleges, there's a lot. And we don't want to rush that uh, unless we want to skip middle school. That might be good, but uh, it's just a long, long time. And if you have a graduate in your home this year, a young man or a young woman, in seven years they will be 25. They will be through college, probably married or about to be married, possibly beginning to have their, not only their careers, their ministries, maybe a family. That's a long, long time. And the reason I, I share that with us is that the book of Revelation, uh, all these events don't happen in a week. Uh, they don't happen in a month. Uh, they don't even happen in a year or two years. They're over a period of seven years. And when we're reading about some of these events, 
it's good for us to stop and to kind of push back and try to see the big picture and how God is working with men, how these things happen, how these people interact, uh, key people in the, in the book of, uh, of Revelation. Uh, and there are a couple of phrases that are used in uh, not only the book of Daniel, but the book of Revelation. I have them here, 40 and two months, uh, 1,230 days. And there are God's time markers. It marks out for us different parts of this seven year period so that we'll know maybe where we're at. <clears throat> let me go on to this timing and just kind of stay with me. If this is new to you, don't let it confuse you. It's all in Daniel chapter nine, where the angel speaks to Daniel. Daniel has been in captivity about 70 years. He was a young man when he was taken away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed. He has been living in Babylon for all of his life and he's reading the book of Jeremiah that was written the time that Jerusalem was destroyed. And he's reading Jeremiah because it said in 70 years, the people of Israel would be coming back to the land. And as Daniel reads that and he realizes that it was getting close, he's praying in chapter nine of Daniel, God, what's gonna happen? How are you gonna take care of our people? How are you gonna take care of Jerusalem? It is a moving, moving prayer time that he has in chapter nine. I'd encourage you to read it. But it's during that time of prayer that God sends an angel to him to give him the plan that God has for his people. It begins by saying 70 weeks. In Hebrew, 70 sevens are determined upon your people, your people in the holy city. God had a plan for Jerusalem a long range plan for Jerusalem. And he marks out 70 weeks, 77. Each week in God's plan is seven, seven years. And his plan, God's plan will involve 490 years. And he outlines specific events that will take place. And again, reading from, uh, from Daniel, and just stay with me on this, please. Know therefore and understand that the command from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, one of the things that was going to happen, God tells Daniel that the leader of the world, Babylon or Persia at that particular time, Cyrus, would give a decree and after that decree to go back to rebuild the land, it would be seven weeks or 49 years. Once that happens, it would take that long for Jerusalem to rebuild. It would be rebuilt in difficult times, uh, the angel tells Daniel. And we read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. The second part of the plan, as you'll notice, from Jerusalem, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, until the time the Messiah comes, three score, that's 60, and two weeks. And when we look at history, we find out that the rebuilding of the temple did in fact take place during the years that the angel told Daniel, those weeks, seven weeks. And the coming of the Messiah, uh, right on schedule, as God always knows what he's doing, as he comes to this time of 70, uh, the 69th week, 
and the, the Savior comes, but there's one week that's not accounted for yet. Now Daniel tells us about it, tells us about a time when the Savior will put away uh, wickedness, establish righteousness, and will rule the world for God. That's how God's plan for Israel will, uh, will end. But we have a problem, and you see it also in Daniel. Israel rejects the Savior. It crucifies their Savior. We know that. The book of Daniel says the Messiah will be cut off. And it means that he will die. It says not for himself. He will die for us. And so this plan of 70 weeks, we have 69 accounted for, but there's one that's not accounted for because God's plan for Israel is on hold because the nation of Israel has rejected the Savior. God can't complete the plan. God cannot lead Israel into the future that he has planned for it because they've rejected the Savior. And so everything's on hold, and God now for 2,000 years has reached out to the world asking them to come to Christ for salvation. And people have all around the world this age of grace. The book of Revelation begins that last week. Let me show you this. It tells us that when this period, the last week begins, he, this is from Daniel, the Antichrist, the beast, he will confirm a covenant. He will make a treaty with the nation of Israel, for, with many, for one week. This is this last week that's unaccounted for. Not that he understands God's timetable. That's, he just made a treaty. It's going to last. This period's going to last for seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will cause everything to stop. He will break the covenant he's made. And so, although the last week is a period of seven and a half, or seven years, it's broke right in the middle. At the beginning of it, we find out that he makes a treaty with the nation of Israel, allowing them to rebuild the temple. But in the middle of that period, he breaks it. And that's where we come today, chapter 11, verse 1. Okay, chapter 11, verse 1. John's in heaven, he's seeing this, the angel is giving a tour, and notice there was given unto me a rod like, or a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, arise, measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship in the temple. So what John does now is he focuses upon this, this particular period, and he sees that this tribulation has begun. The Jewish temple is built. <clears throat> it is filled with worshipers. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I want you to think with me about this for a little bit. It's been 2,000 years since the Jewish people have had a temple. 2,000 years. To the Orthodox Christian or the Orthodox uh, Jew, uh, there is no hope for the world until that temple is done. Uh, they have to have a temple. It is the, the vehicle that God brings salvation to the world. In their mind, the world is stalled, it's hollow, it can't go anywhere until this temple is done. And imagine, if you would please, in your mind, 
the joy of the Jewish people when the news comes to them that they can rebuild their temple. Again, 2,000 years since they've had a temple. Now, you know, in Solomon's temple, they didn't spare anything. It was most magnificent. It lasted 470 years, and unfortunately, it was destroyed during Daniel's time when he was carried away. Later, during Jesus' ministry, many, many centuries later, there was another temple. There's a model of it you see on the screen now called Herod's Temple. It was destroyed, and for 2,000 years, the Jewish people have been without a temple. But just imagine what it's going to be like for them when they have the right to build a temple, when they get the green light, and the Antichrist has done this, and they begin to build, and the enthusiasm, and it is going to be magnificent. It is going to be breathtaking. And the Jewish people in the last part of verse 1 are now filling this with praise and worship to God as they worship. <clears throat> it's going to happen. And that's what we see the beginning of the tribulation right here. And that's just, I hope you can kind of take that in. I looked up a couple of websites. If you would like to look at this from a cultural and a current standpoint, Google search the new temple Institute, the New Temple Institute, and you will have a series of introductory videos and articles that will explain to you <clears throat> just where they are as they think about planning for this particular temple. And again, I don't think there's any way that we can fully understand what this is going to mean to the Jewish people to have their temple. And as, as we look at this, just from a history standpoint, in 1948, after the war, the world was, um, I think, saddened by the Holocaust and they recognized, the United Nations recognized Israel as a legitimate state, a legitimate country. They had regained their statehood. In 1967, about 20 years later, um, there was Jordan, Egypt, and Syria in their hatred for the Jewish people sent their armies into Jerusalem to annihilate them. Well, in that six-day war, Israel so beat them and pushed them back that Israel took the land that they have now. 33 years ago from today, in 1987, the nation of Israel established the Sanhedrin, reconvened the Sanhedrin, part of their political process, <clears throat> and gave them the authority to begin to set up the rules that would guide the rebuilding of the third temple. And today, uh, you may not have known it, but they have been preparing for that the last 33 years. They have all of the utensils, all of the uh, pieces of equipment for worship that we see in the Old Testament that the priests use. They have them ready. Uh, they have the priest garments. Uh, they have a... Um, kind of a mock altar, a brazen altar for sacrifice where they have reenactments where men who are trained for the priesthood are being trained on how to care for an animal sacrifice, not only killing it, caring for it, presenting it to God. They're doing all this. They have what they call a temple forest, uh, an area that's dedicated to the growing of all the herbs and the spices and different things they need for all the things that are here. 
my point is, is that when the Antichrist does reveal himself, when he begins to take his place in the world stage, this treaty is signed. It's not going to take Israel very long to get this up and running. They are getting ready for it now. And in chapter 11, verse 1, John sees this magnificent temple filled with Jewish worshipers. And he wants us to see it too. Now, I want to be very cautious here because we have a problem. The Jewish people have not accepted Christ as their Savior. They don't even think of him. They have totally dismissed him. There is no thought about the cross and what Jesus did for us there when he died for the sins of the world. There's none of that. And the reason I share that with you is even as joyful and as devoted as they are in their worship to God, the worship that John sees here is already defective. It is not pleasing to God. It will not be acceptable to God. And the reason is they have accepted the man that made this treaty as their Messiah and completely dismissed the true Savior. They don't even think about him anymore. They've moved on from that. And there is no way that anybody can be pleasing to God by going around the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is so clear about that. Um, people today want to make the statement, well, you know, uh, if I believe in a God, then he's going to be this kind of God. Or if God's going to accept me, it's because I do this. I want a God that thinks the way I do. We don't get the right to shape our own God or to shape our salvation. If God wants to accept me, if heaven's going to be my home, it's because I do that. None of that. None of that. We need to come to Christ for our salvation. And as magnificent as this worship is, it's not pleasing to God. And unfortunately, like the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. I bear them knowledge that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a devotion to God, but they want to do it that their way. So when Jesus came, instead of accepting him, we don't want it this way. They crucified him. We're going to do it our way. God says, no, no, it's not going to work. The picture begins to change. Notice in verse 2. But the court that is without the temple, the uh, court of the Gentiles, don't measure it. For it's given unto the Gentiles in the holy city. They shall tread underfoot. The holy city will be tread underfoot. Here's one of our time markers. Forty and two months. Now what he's telling us here is this. And Daniel tells us the same thing. The Antichrist, the man who said he was the Messiah, he would care for them, gives them the right to build the temple. Their temple worship is very short-lived. Right in the middle, three and a half years, the man who made the covenant will break the covenant. Daniel tells us this. Jesus tells us this. Paul tells us this in 2 Thessalonians. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, stand in the holy place. That is the place that was reserved in the temple only for God. And he goes in 
where he's not supposed to be. Second Thessalonians tells us that he sits on a chair, a throne, and he declares that the only God that the world needs is him. And all other religions, no matter what they are, are smashed, destroyed, and no longer allowed to operate. All of them. He desecrates the temple. Every square inch. He doesn't, he doesn't destroy it. It is made empty. It's desecrated. And this, if it took two years to build the temple, there's a year and a half where the Jewish people are thrilled. They have their worship. It's exciting. And then all of a sudden it quits. And then the Antichrist, this man who made the covenant but then broke it, allows the world to unleash a mass slaughter of the Jewish people everywhere. And it is awful. And think about what's happening to the Jewish people. Uh, they thought this man was the Messiah. They were thrilled that their temple now could be built. It's built, they're in it, they're enjoying it. And then all of a sudden they learn this man hates them. He is a murderer. He, he defiles anything in the everything in the temple. He defiles God and it's just so they have to be destroyed inwardly when they're going through this. And it says in the last part of it, in verse 2, that the city will be given to the Gentiles for three and a half years. It means that for three and a half years in Jerusalem, people will openly mock the Jewish people. They will hurt them. They will abuse them. They will mock God. They will do all of those things. And it is just an incredible, difficult time for them. It's, it's, just, it's just awful. And that's what he sees. But let's go on to the next, well, let me show you the kind of a summary here. The first half where he makes the treaty, the second half where he breaks it. The first half is three and a half years, just like the second. The man, the Antichrist, gains world status, is seen as a political genius. We've talked about that. He, he enables this treaty to take place. They build the temple. Israel has peace. They build a temple. And the Jewish people experience the worship of the temple. Wonderful thing. But then all of a sudden, this man who was now coming on the scene has world control. He takes everything away from Israel. The temple is desecrated, defiled, not destroyed. But it's desecrated. It's totally abandoned. And Israel faces slaughter. They are a shattered and broken people. This is much worse than the Holocaust. And these two verses are just so dramatic when we think about what's happening to the nation of Israel. Now, God always knows what he's doing. He always knows what men are doing. And I want to move into the second part of this chapter because as soon as this desecration of the temple takes place and this man sets himself up as God, God does something that the world doesn't see coming. Look at this. Notice, if you would, in verse 3. I will give power unto my two witnesses. Okay, now think, think with me. What is a witness? Okay, we know what a witness is. A witness is somebody who tells others the truth that they know. God is raising up two witnesses to tell the, tell the world there is a God and you need to be right with him. Notice what he says. As 
this passage unfolds, these two people are described in, uh, in a way that makes them appear like they're very similar to Moses and Elijah, two of the greatest prophets that Israel ever had. You'll see that if you're familiar with some of the Old Testament. Notice when we go through here. I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they will prophesy a thousand, two hundred, threescore days. And this is done already, and I'm going to ignore it for a little bit. I want you to see this. That's that time marker, three and a half years. We have three and a half years to go to the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes. But notice, they are going to witness. They are going to tell the world there is a God, and you need to be right with him. They're, they are clothed in sackcloth. Elijah was clothed in sackcloth. It was uh, a way that he demonstrated that he was completely devoted to God, and he was making a protest against the world that was around him in northern Israel. And he was very harsh. Uh, he was very stern with people who had set up idols to other God, gods and in the Old Testament. And he said, there is a God in Israel, and you need to repent. You need to get right with him. That's the same kind of thing that's going on here. And that's why we're giving it this. Notice it said in verse 5, that if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, devoureth their enemies, devoureth their enemies. If you're familiar with Elijah, you know that the wicked king Ahab sent soldiers one time to capture him and destroy him. And as the soldiers drew near, Elijah just said, if I am a prophet of the true God, may fire come down from heaven and destroy them. And that's exactly what happened. So Ahab sent another 50. Elijah does the same thing. It happens. They're wiped out with fire. It's a reference to what's happening, this same kind of Elijah type of ministry. And the last part of that, uh, verse 6, they have power to shut heaven. Elijah did that. It did not rain during the days of their prophecy. And then the last part, to have power over waters, to turn them to blood, to smite the earth with plagues. Moses did that. And you have two witnesses that are raised by God that are incredibly bold. They have a supernatural element to their ministry and the world can't touch them. And that's what drives them nuts. And it says that, uh, that if anybody tries to hurt them that they can't, they can't silence them, they can't hurt them. And these men are making it clear to the world there is a God and they need to be right with God. And now something happens. Very unusual. Watch what happens. We're going to go through this in Revelation real quick. Verse 7, And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit, don't get lost in the detail, keep your eyes on the two witnesses. Notice what happens to them. And when they had finished their testimony, or their ministry. The Antichrist will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. This is Jerusalem, where the temple was. And the people and they of the people, the kindreds and tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three days and a half and will not allow their bodies to be put into the graves. 
this is so significant to the world, so wonderful to the world, they're not even giving these two witnesses common decency. You can't touch them, don't put them in the grave. It's just awful. But now, verse 10, and they that dwell upon the earth will rejoice over them, the fact that they're dead, and make merry, that's feasting, like Thanksgiving. They will send gifts one to another. That's like Christmas, because the two prophets that tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And what we have here is the entire world celebrating the death of these two witnesses. What's that tell you about the world? They're celebrating because in their minds, anything that they said, anything that they stood for, you don't have to believe. It's, it's all gone. If they're dead, you don't have to pay attention to it. It's meaningless. And they are having a wonderful party thinking about the world being free from this and they can go back to their focus without God. And then something happens. I wish I had time to talk about this a little bit more. I just want you to see what happens. Notice all of this partying. Verse 11, and after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood up upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. Now catch this, the whole world is watching this. These men have been killed, they've been dead for three days, the world is having a party time with it, and they are rejoicing because this thorn in the flesh, these two men, they've been done away with, and now all of a sudden God raises them up, and they see it. And it says great fear fell upon them all. And you can be sure that it did. And if the question is asked, well, why did God even allow them to be killed? The, the answer probably can be at least part of this. There are times when we talk with people, uh, they just don't want to listen. So they check, us, check out on us. They just don't listen. They turn us off. They tune us out. And they made it up in their mind they're not going to listen to that. They're just not going to listen to that. And they can push it aside. Well, yeah, you can do that with people. With 144,000, God has been trying to reach the world. With these two witnesses, God is trying to reach the world. And now with this magnificent event, raising them, giving them life, they can't dismiss it. They saw it. They were dead. But they didn't stay dead. And they have to do something with it. And if you'll notice, God, to make the point real clear, he shakes the whole area. And I want to close with this, verse 13. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake, they were killed of men 7,000. And notice, in the, the remnant, the rest were afraid, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. And that's what God was doing all along wanting to reach into their hearts. God is doing everything he can to bring people to his son for salvation while there is yet time. And this emphasis of raising these men from the dead, not only did they stand up, read the verse, people hear a voice from heaven, come up here, and they see them ascend to heaven. They, it's just hard to process. And many of them will turn to Christ because of this. I got to stop there. We're out of time. You probably have a lot of questions, but uh, that is Revelation chapter 11, the timing, the temple, and the two witnesses. I hope you're able to follow along with that. Thanks for being with us again.